This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. We've asked this before. It was a while back, but uh, we'll see if the answer changes now. Would you purposefully get COVID-19 if it's in the name of science? No. <laughs> well, some people in the UK, they're going to. It's a challenge trial, and we'll uh, talk about it. The goal, by the way, is to understand transmission and the effects of the virus. So we will get into how this will work and how exactly it will help us. We've talked about the South African variants outsmarting the vaccines at least a bit. Now there's another variant that might be even smarter. So we'll look at that. The pandemic might be creating healthy habits that people will make permanent even after this is finally all behind us. We start, though, with getting infected on purpose for science. Josh Morrison, co-founder of the advocacy and organizing group One Day Sooner, which has gathered over 30,000 volunteers willing to be infected with COVID to take part in trials. So, Josh, uh, the goal here is what? What are the doctors trying to learn? Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, that's, so that's the first thing. And that's exactly right, is trying to learn more about this disease by tracking it from the very beginning. Because, of course, usually by the time you see a doctor with when you have COVID, um, you know, you've been infected for, for a while. And so this first study is going to teach us more about how the disease works from the beginning. And then by establishing uh, what's called the, the minimum infectious dose, then you can test uh, vaccines or treatments or other things in future studies and know that you're not going to be giving someone an overwhelming dose that's likely to make them very, uh, very ill. Now, I know uh, early on, before we had uh, vaccines to use, there were, as you know, discussions, uh, in fact, with you, about mm -hmm. uh, doing these challenge studies. Uh, mm -hmm. But in those days, those days, a few months ago, it yep. was considered to be kind of risky because we didn't really have any great therapeutics. We didn't have vaccines. Now we do mm -hmm. have vaccines and we do have some pretty good therapeutics. So does that mm -hmm. make these these uh, challenge trials, therefore, far less risky for those involved? I think it makes them less risky. Um, I think that, you know, having seen that, that monoclonal antibodies can reduce um, illness if, if given early, I think that does reduce the risk in, in these studies. And, and, you know, we have a bit better understanding of what the risks are, who is most at risk. Um, and so that that will help as well. Which one, which version do they get? Mm -hmm. Is it the one we got used to? At the beginning of this, is it one of the new ones to watch what happens? Although that seems maybe more dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So the so for now, the first study is going to be um, in the kind of usual version and not in one of the new strains. Uh, I expect that they will end up trying to do um, sort of bridging studies to to see if the same infectious dose that works in the kind of original um, SARS-CoV-2 will also produce the same results for uh, the UK strain or the South Africa strain. What kind of person volunteers for this? Yeah, so um, obviously, you know, I think almost 40,000 people from around the world have signed up our site as interested. So people come in all kinds. But I think some common themes are that um, it tends to be a, a fairly well-educated person, someone who has um, often familiarity with with medicine or, or um, biomedical science. Uh, and then I think it's also, you know, I think a lot of people are are people who are motivated, you know, by by wanting to help others and wanting to be of service and and wanting to kind of have a sense of control and agency in the pandemic. Want to feel like they can do something useful um, instead of 
you just kind of being a passive observer. And what do they get for doing this? So um, we don't. So right now, um, the the people who signed up with with us, you know, no idea what the the compensation would be and and things like that. Um, it looks like it's probably going to be for the. the I think it's going to be about a seventeen day stay in quarantine. Uh, I think it's around four thousand pounds is going to be the the compensation that you receive for being in the the study, if I remember correctly. All right, Josh Morrison, co-founder of the Advocacy Group, organizing group One Day Sooner. Josh, thanks. This virus doesn't want to give up easily, but the vaccine's out now. Another variant has been found in 10 countries so far. The concerning part is that this mutation can possibly also escape the vaccines like the South African variant. Can we keep up with all these variants? Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist, UC San Francisco. So, doctor, are the vaccines working even if someone still gets sick? I guess we can just aim for, you know, a cold that's putting you down for a couple days, but not sending you to the hospital. Uh, When we think about vaccine efficacy, it's not just getting the infection in the first place. It's getting bad stuff from being infected. So if it means I don't go to the hospital, I don't go to the ICU, I'll be really psyched about that. Is there a messaging problem then for the public? Because this was going around on Twitter last night. It was one of the posts from from someone doing a Q&A with the health department, I think up north. And the question was, can I hug my grandchild after getting the vaccine? And the answer on the post was, well, we are not sure because of new variants and things like that. So you have to always keep up with social distancing and masks. And I saw some doctors chime in and say, no, if you've got both your Pfizer or Moderna shots, go and hug your grandkid because no one is ever not going to do these things they've been waiting for a year to do. And I I subscribe to that view, Mike, because, um, you know, I think of what will eventually happen before society opens up is what I think about as immunity bubbles. So people who've gotten vaccines can still get together in an intimate setting, uh, in a small setting and hug each other with wild abandon, um, you know, listen to music, dance, uh, you know, have fun. So does it mean and I and I I guess, you know, look, I mean, I know that nobody really has 100 percent of the answer to this because it's still a pretty new um, virus and our experience with the vaccines also pretty uh, new. But is it your best educated guess that as these variants emerge and they seem to be emerging at an increasing number, or at least we're finding them? at an increasing number. I mean, we'd go crazy if we had to keep adjusting the vaccine every five weeks to a new, you know, variant, right? Is it your best guess that these vaccines, all of them, uh, again, you know, while they may not be that effective because of a variant uh, stopping you from getting sick for a few days, that they should still prevent serious illness regardless of, of the mutation? Exactly. Even the feared South African variant uh, is uh, there's very little evidence that uh, it's sending people to the hospital, sending people to the ICU. So I think that I'm still hopeful that even with the scary variants around that having a vaccine period would protect you against bad stuff. The sheer numbers are also important, right? If we can scale vaccines and, you know, we are late to the game, uh, but if we can get going faster, it's fewer places for the virus, whatever strain to replicate, and then fewer variants that could then pop up. You give it fewer places to go and and it runs out of fire. Exactly, Mike. So you to have scary variants, you need to have um, replication before you mutate. So if you don't have replication, that is not enough noses and mouths getting together with active virus, then the the virus is left sort of befuddled because it there's nothing to mutate around because there's not enough of it there.
I'm starting to feel sorry now for the, for the poor little it's virus. It's befuddled. <laughs> I know. I can't I, find a nose. <laughs> I, I mean, you see, he, what I'm concerned about, Doctor, is that some people are going to hear the news about these variants and how the vaccines may not be as effective against them and think, you know what, uh, I'm not going to get a vaccine now. I'll just wait six months or 10 months until, you know, the new version of the vaccine is out. That would be a terrible mistake, wouldn't it? That would be a tremendously terrible mistake because the longer you wait, you know, right now we're, we're, the South African is the scariest variant around and the Brazilian maybe, but there will be probably a newer, scarier variant even around uh, the more that it circulates in the community. The more we get vaccinated right now, again, the little, the less virus there is in the community and give it gets uh, fewer chances to mutate to something even scarier. When the time eventually comes, when there is one that's scary enough that you're going to have to change the vaccine, uh, how quickly can that be done and and how do you pick which which one to go after i guess if if there are a couple (laughs) yeah so well the good news is that it takes very little time to make a new covid vaccine because the whole covid genome was sequenced already and you just basically essentially cut and paste the message or the genetic code for whatever you want to make the vaccine against if it's a new spike protein that's scary you cut and paste that genetic code and you put it in this fatty bubble if it's an mRNA vaccine and lickety split, you have a new vaccine. But the problem is, of course, as we know and experiencing so uh, tragically right now, distribution and production uh, will take some time. But, you know, in terms of how this will play out, you're right. We can't just run after every variant and like make a new vaccine for it. We'll be, you know, Uh, running around in circles, but rather I think we can get lessons from the flu vaccine because every year we have to get a new one and it's just part of what we do. And the way it's set up is the countries uh, send samples to the WHO and they do the genomic analyses. And when a certain type is worse in a certain place, uh, then they intervene and they decide what flu vaccine to give that particular year based on what's circulating around the world. So it might be that kind of situation, but you need to have enough surveillance. You need to have enough testing. You need to have enough genomic analysis. And right now we're sequencing less than 1% of the isolates in the U.S. and we're like number 34 in the world. So we need to catch up. Dr. Peter Chin Hong directs the host infectious diseases program, UC San Francisco. Doctor, thanks. Coming up after this short break, we'll go over the good habits people might keep up after the pandemic ends. People have changed their behavior since the pandemic started in terms of hygiene, more hand washing and more cleaning at home and at work. But are we going to stick with all this when uh, all this is over? Researchers at Ohio State looked into it. Dr. Ian Gonzenhauser is Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer at Ohio State. He was with KYW's Matt Leon. We were really interested in getting a sense for how people were feeling. You know, we're coming up on almost a year of dealing with pandemic precautions. And we were really interested to know uh, if people planned on continuing and how robust that continuation might be as we get towards the hopeful end of the pandemic. And you found, I was kind of surprised you found that a lot of people are looking to continue with uh, the the safety measures, uh, 
going forward, even as we hopefully wind out of this? Yeah, you know, we were surprised, too. I really didn't expect to see such a robust response of people, you know, the vast majority of people, 70, 80 percent, depending on which domain we looked at, really stating that they were interested in continuing these things on. I think we've all seen those images, you know, from countries in in the East, in China and Japan. Um, We've seen where people have worn masks in public for years already. But I don't think anybody expected such a large number of people indicating that they continue these precautions, uh, even when this when this comes to a close. I mean, you can't get in the heads of all these people. What do you think's behind it? Because it, it, frankly, we are so used to seeing these pictures of people even now sneaking into group settings and underground concerts and stuff like that. It's fascinating to me that people are actually looking to go the other way. Yeah, it's totally discordant with the images that we've seen of people who are kind of antagonizing the precautions, you know, now to see this group of people that are really signing on for the long haul. I think we're seeing a few things. I think one thing that we're seeing is, you know, people's optimism and eagerness to get to the end of the pandemic. I think at this point, uh, people are willing to do just about anything, you know, to get to the end of this thing. We're all tired of it. We've all had enough. We're tired of talking about masks. Uh, and social distancing. So I think that's one thing is people are just being optimistic and, and sort of demonstrating that commitment to seeing this to the end. I think the other thing that we're seeing is, you know, people are realizing that the benefits of masking and physical distancing are really far beyond just COVID even. Uh, we look at the flu season this year and how incredibly low our flu numbers have been in our region here in central Ohio. We've had one case of flu admitted to the hospital. We've had zero in our health system. And we see, you know, millions of patients a year. So I think people are looking at that also, and they're seeing the gains that can be had from something that is really a pretty small commitment, gains in terms of productivity and feeling better and lower cost for healthcare. I think all that comes up as well. So, so I think all of that is playing into the opinion and, and the direction that people are headed to continue these precautions. Was there one precaution that was the people were most likely and one that they were least likely as far as your findings? Yeah, you know, they all they all came out relatively equally. And that's sort of 70 to 85 percent of people, 75 to 85 percent of people saying that they would continue on. Uh, masking was a big one. Um, the big one that I think was was maybe more surprising than than all of them were the willingness that people showed to assure that they're going to stay home from work when they're feeling ill. I think that's one of the things that became really very apparent in this experience, that there's a lot to be gained from that, both for employers as well as employees. Um, So hopefully that's going to be supported not just by the individuals who may come down with a cold or an illness in the future, but by their employers also to allow them the flexibility to keep that at home, not impact their coworkers, not impact productivity, and actually get back to work probably sooner than if they stayed at work with an illness. Does this tell you, because it's, This tells me that we've learned a lot as a people, and that kind of goes against what I think uh, most people would take as the headline out of this, that this stuff did get through and people really were trying their best. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a converted pessimist, now optimist. I'm a converted cynic, now idealist. And, and I want to, I really want to believe that there has been a lot of learning in this experience. We've, we've committed a lot. We've sacrificed a lot. And I'm really hopeful that people are going to take the lessons that have, le- that have been learned over the past year, apply them moving forward. And, and we can really end up in a better place than, than where we started. It's, 
it's a big sacrifice that we've made to get here. But hopefully through people's actions and through these insights and changes and behavior changes, uh, that sacrifice isn't for nothing. If I talk to you five years from now, we talk about people are going to maintain this, but five years is a long time. I know in a lot of Asian countries, like wearing a mask during flu, it's just part of life. It's just become ingrained. And do you think that will stick around long, long term, things like that? Maybe not on a grand scale, but you won't do five years from now. You wouldn't do a double take if you pass somebody in a supermarket that was wearing a, a mask, even if you weren't thinking of it. I don't think we'll be surprised five years from now if people are still wearing masks, particularly during uh, flu season. I think it'll be a minority of people by then, and we'll see behavior has largely kind of reverted back to, to prior uh, pre-pandemic uh, expectations. I do think that there will be you know, certain things that have come from this that will be persistent. I think changes in the workplace, changes in the work environment, people shifting to remote work, Things of that nature, I think, will will stick around for a lot longer. Maybe people's understanding of the importance of vaccination. Maybe that's something that we take away from this. So I, I think that there will be bits and pieces that will be long-term influence. But I think you're right. I, I think for the most part, five years from now, we're going to see things looking a whole lot more normal than we may expect. As far as when we can get to the end of this, and I heard... I forget where I heard it, but I thought it was a great analogy. Somebody said, the end of the pandemic, it's not going to be flipping on a switch. It's going to be like a dimmer and a dimmer that slowly returns back to normal. What are some things that we should look for when we are really close to the end of this and we can relax things? Yeah, so, I mean, it's starting right now. And I would say one of the one of the best things that we've seen thus far that indicates we are starting to move back. And you're right, it's going to be incremental. It's going to be baby steps. Uh, but a really big determination from the CDC uh, where they've changed the guidance now on individuals who have been vaccinated, who have received both vaccines, uh, both vaccine doses, excuse me, and are about three weeks past the second vaccine, no longer have to quarantine when they have an or even a known exposure. That seems like a little thing, but that's actually a huge change for us. It takes a huge percentage of the population out of that need to quarantine when they're exposed to somebody who has COVID. So that may feel small, but that's actually a big step towards normalcy. Those are the types of things that we're going to see uh, start stacking up and adding on. And it's going to be the sum total of all of those small changes that all of a sudden we're going to look at the situation and realize, wow, you know, there are still a few things lingering from this, but by and large, we're kind of back to standard operating procedure. It's going to take still, you know, good number of months. I don't think it'll be a full year. Um, I actually think come uh, late spring, we're going to start seeing things looking a lot more normal than they have uh, over the past year by summer. I think people are going to start to feel like normalcy has to some extent been restored. We need a large percentage of the population to be vaccinated. We need to start seeing our community positivity rates dropping and dropping quickly. Uh, and once we know that our vaccinations and our control steps are outpacing uh, the new variants and the new cases, it's at that point we're going to feel a whole lot more comfortable. The thing I find the most interesting of all the, you know, we talk masks, hand washing and everything that's kind of been drilled into our heads. I'm very interested to see crowds and see how that comes back and i'm curious what you think that's going to look like because i 
think there is a certain segment of the population, it's not large by any means, but it's also not infinitesimal, that might just be done with crowds for good, no? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be there are going to be a lot of people who have major anxiety when it comes to being in crowds, being indoors, you know, even even not a huge crowd, but just with people that are that are in close proximity. Um, there are a lot of people that are going to have anxiety that they're going to need to to work on to try and get back to that place. And they, and they may be done for the foreseeable future. You know, I, it's going to be tough. There's going to be a lot of reacclimation that's going to happen shaking hands with people, giving hugs, those sorts of things. That's going to be a slow re-entry for many. And it's going to be interesting to see how that materializes. And how long, from your standpoint, are we going to have to be removed from this until we can kind of get the, the grand picture of the effect it took on, on our society? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think it's a, it's a nuanced question with a lot of different facets, right? There's economic impact, there's social and behavioral impact, there's emotional impact, there's educational impact on our children. I think it's going to take a long time before we can really fully inventory kind of the, the myriad different impacts that this has had on us. The impacts will be profound. There are people right now that are finishing up you know, their, their master's degrees and their PhD degrees, they're going to be studying this for their entire career. Um, so the learning is going to continue, I think, for, for as long as we keep paying attention. But we're going, to know, we're going to know a lot over the next handful of years as to how impactful this has truly been. You've probably seen pictures and videos of people getting their vaccine shots. You may even know people who have gotten one or both doses. How does that make you feel? Well, if you're a little jealous, you're certainly not alone. Vaccine envy is now kind of a thing. Psychologists say envy is a valid emotion and it makes sense in a crisis. They say many people are also angry that they can't do more to help people they love, you know, elderly parents or disabled children. When someone feels powerless, they can start blaming others and feeling resentful. Experts say you might try sharing your feelings with a group so they can offer support. And they say, recognize you're not a bad person for feeling this way. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You know, I did feel that way at one point, and then I realized that's because I am a bad person. Uh, Well, they're not, (laughs) but you are. (laughs) Right. Right.